Hey, book by book, I'm Richard Buse, and I am delighted and honoured to welcome you to this next in our series of studies on the book of Revelation. We're in Plymouth, England, South England, and uh, we're joined here by Paul Blackham, my colleague, and also by our special guest for the whole of this series on Revelation, and that is the Reverend Dr. Stephen Nichols. And as we come now today, well, we, we've read of the, in the last study of the overthrow of, of the worldly power. Now with the renewed vision of Jesus, first of all, in chapter 19, at the close of the, this great series of sevenfold visions, we read of the disposal of these other allies of Satan, the beast and the false prophet. And indeed, we're going to see Satan for the very last time in this study. So as we begin, I'm going to read from chapter 19 and 11 to 16 as we read about Jesus, the triumphant rider on the white horse. So, Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I'd almost like to stop the study right there. Mm -hmm. It's so wonderful what we just read about Jesus Christ. And actually, what can we learn a little bit about him from that reading? I mean, about, for example, there are four names I see here. The robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? Stephen, speak to us for a minute. It is such a magnificent picture, isn't it? The climax of these visions, the rider on the white horse. There's no doubt really who he is. We've come across him already in chapter mm. six, the first of the horsemen, the four horsemen. Uh, it is the Lord Jesus Christ riding out in triumph over his, over his enemies. And he has these four names, faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords. And yet he also has this fourth name in verse 12, mm. a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And I guess that means there's always something mysterious about Christ. Mm. We never really uh, know everything. How can we know everything about him? There's always, he always eludes us a little. Mm. Um, it reminds us of Matthew 11. Um, uh, that, that the son is almost more mysterious than the father. The son mm. reveals the father to us, but the son himself is always a bit beyond mm. us, a bit mysterious. And he's dipped in, he's wearing a robe dipped in blood. Um, and we might think, well, well, whose blood is it? Is it his blood? Are we talking of Calvary here? I know. Well, no, the clue is in verse 15, uh, a theme of judgment. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Mm. It's the same picture we had at the end of chapter 14 of Revelation and Isaiah 63 and that prophecy of Jacob back in Genesis 49, right at the very beginning mm. of a king who would come, who would wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. As he treads out the nations in judgment, mm. their blood stains his robes like the blood of grapes. Yes, it's, it's a wonderful passage. 
And then almost immediately, we're moving on to those who are waging war mm. against the rider on the white horse. Mm. So we, we see that from verse 17 onwards. And how successful is the world's war against the rider? Well, it's a strange thing, isn't it? All the forces of the world gather together, verses 18 and 19. 19 the beast and the kings of the earth gather together. And then verse 20, the beast was captured. <laughs> so there is no actual battle. It's over in a moment. And that reminds us there is no dualism as if the forces of good and evil are matched and who knows how it's going to turn out. No, the rider on the horse reigns. And if you notice, it says that he will rule them with an iron scepter. Well, when does he rule? Do you yeah, know, it's interesting. Sure. Does he, are we waiting for Christ to start to reign? No, because that is referred to back in Acts 2, 34 to 36. Christ ascends up on high and Peter goes, this promise to David that there's a king who will rule over all the nations, he's happened. He's reigning. He's ascended up to the control room of the universe. He's reigning. The four, so all the way through the book of Revelation, we've seen how though the judgments come, though persecution comes, though suffering comes, Christ is reigning and there's never any con. He's always in charge. And when he finally rides out, no contest. No, that's right, because when we had the rider on the white horse at the beginning of chapter 6, he's been, although we, he's not always mentioned as the rider on the white horse right the way through until chapter 19, he's been riding along with the church all the way through, and as you say, ruling. The rule is already on. Actually, of course, as we move on in our little series here, uh, all, you know, we can look at chapter 20 and verse 1 to 5, and we then have this part about the millennium, the reign of a thousand years. So how are we to understand that? Well, I think you've already given us the big hint, Paul. I mean, does, the, does it follow hard on the heels of the events portrayed in the previous chapters? No, I don't think so. Because, you know, we're seeing a new vision again unfolding. With the, 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 the camera is showing us, the video is returned, and once again... We run back to the beginning of the video, a repeat playback, really, in chapter 20, I think, of chapter 12, where we learnt of Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, war in heaven. It's the cross of Calvary once more, but seen, again, from a heavenly perspective. And there Satan was defeated. At that point, the thousand-year period of victory began for the people of God. Mm. So I don't see Revelation 20 as following chronologically after chapter 19. I think the video has rewound. We're looking at Calvary again. There was a new aspect, of course, to it. So I know that not every Bible student sees it necessarily in that way. Uh, there are some who are called uh, the pre-millennialists. And the great thing about them is they're very positive in their view of Scripture. And uh, in their interpretation, the return of Christ is thought of coming before, that is, pre-the millennium. In chapter 19, actually, to be precise. Then we'll follow chapter 20 here in their uh, understanding with its account of the chaining of Satan, the setting up of Christ's kingdom here on earth. That's verse 1 to 6. Then they would say, verse 7 to 10, after a thousand years, Satan is let loose for a last fling, only to be defeated with his allies. Then, verse 11 to 15, would follow, as they would think, the raising of the remaining dead and the day of judgment, together with the overthrow of the unrepentant. And then, finally, the uh, new heaven and the new earth. 
And I would perhaps think that although they're so strong on Scripture, it's a very small portion of Scripture that they're fastening upon here. And maybe once we get away from that chapter, it doesn't seem quite enough in the rest of the New Testament and in the Bible to point us to such an interpretation. Though we honor those who who have a reverent view of Scripture in this way. Also, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, numbers are taken usually symbolically. So we have to be careful before we start saying that the thousand years are to be interpreted in a kind of literal way. No, I think they're symbolical. In contrast to our friends uh, of the premillennialists, who think that Christ's coming comes before the millennium, there are the postmillennialists. And they're another set of Bible students. And again, we can only respect one another in our endeavor to understand the meaning of this remarkable passage of Revelation 20. So the post-millennialist would expect Christ's return to occur after, post the millennium. And their understanding would be that the thousand-year reign that is still really largely lying ahead. And it'll be a golden era, far more triumphant than anything we know at the present. The chaining and the shutting up of Satan would be, they maintain, unequivocally definite, clear-cut, and obvious. And then, and then only would come the return of Christ. Well, the popularity of that view is actually, I think, a bit limited today. Maybe because its main weakness is pinpointed by the general New Testament teaching, the period immediately before Christ's return will be fraught with crises and persecutions. For example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 to 12. Then there's a third group, and I suppose we tend to represent that group here in our study. We would be called, I don't really like the title very much, the amillennialists. A from the Greek word without. So the understanding would be we're without a millennium. (laughs) Actually, we would not quite go along with that. We would say, no, we, we thoroughly believe in the millennium, understood as a symbolical number, pointing to our current era, and begun at the cross of Calvary, where Jesus won the victory over evil and darkness and Satan and death. And that Satan himself was defeated then by the blood. Therefore, when we look at Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down and now having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he sees the dragon. We go back again to Revelation 12. There was war in heaven. We're looking now at the victory once again from a heavenly point of view, from a spiritual point of view. And Satan is bound for a thousand years. That's our era now, between Christ's first coming and second coming, symbolically portrayed by the thousand years, locked locked, um, and sealed over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. We take that to be that after Calvary and Pentecost, what happened? Suddenly, the message of Jesus is released globally. Mm. And you remember at the day of Pentecost, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and all the rest. And then eventually, Africa, China, Japan, yeah. South America, it's gone global. And Satan is unable to stop that happening. The message has gone worldwide. The message and the kingdom of Christ are spreading all the time. Nothing can stop it. Mm. Satan, although he's not destroyed yet, 
Nevertheless, he's curtailed. He's, there's a, he's on the end of a chain. He can't do all that he would like to do. Have I, how clearly have I put that? Oh, that sounds fantastic, because by the end of the first century AD, there were churches from China to Scotland, down to Ethiopia, up to Russia. It was like, boom, all the nations of the world, though there were still problems, there was still persecution, the, like the Church of Jesus Christ, boom, went out to the whole world. Fabulous, the reign of Christ. So it seems that we're seeing Calvary, again, the victory of Calvary all over again, but with this added dimension now of the worldwide spread yeah. of Christ's kingdom. And the Satan is uh, held back. He's on the end of a chain. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we preach in the name of Jesus, we can expect victory. Mm -hmm. We can expect an advance. He can't do more than tempt the ordinary believer either. He can't make the believer go his way. Not at all. So it's something along those lines. I think we can... Very helpful. Though we respect, of course, different ways, because we're all trying to understand the Scripture as well as we possibly can. Actually, of course, you know, do the Scriptures indicate, as I was hinting earlier, that we do face a tough time before the end? What do you think, Steve? Well, that's so helpful. I think, I think it's right. It does. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as you, as you mentioned, does. And uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7... Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 12, it seems to indicate a, a brief period right at the very end where Satan will, will be the final great fight between Satan and uh, Christ and his people. Um, could Christ come at any moment? Well, some people say, no, he couldn't. You know, we're still waiting for this tribulation, yeah. the suffering of the church. Well, as we've said in previous studies, we need to keep a, a global view of the church. And remember that in many parts of the world, the church is suffering desperately at the moment. And they would say the tribulation is now. It's on. It's yeah. now. Christ can come at any moment. It may get intensified towards the end, I That's suppose right. we would say. That's right. Yes, indeed. Um, looking actually on at verse 20, mm. chapter 20, verse, the end of verse 4. Yep. Do you think there's a, I think there's a translation yeah. issue yeah. there? because um, Something to do with the living and reigning with Christ in this first resurrection, second resurrection. What's all that about? And sometimes people get quite confused and they'll have all sorts of different events going on and Christ coming back and going away again and raising some people and not others. And I find it quite confusing, but then I find it very helpful to remember John chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, where it just seems to be exactly what's being said here about a time has come now. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. So he's like, right now, we're in an era where people go from death to life. They have a sort of resurrection right now. How do they have it? They hear the word of Jesus, believe in him and pass into life. And so, yeah, they go through the lives and the Christian dies, but in a way lives <laughs> even though they die live and be with Christ and reign with him in the highest heaven all the way through this time. Yes, though we wait for, because Jesus, uh, Jesus then says, don't be amazed at this, a time is coming, but it's not yet. It's at the end of the age, a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to live, those who've done evil to be condemned. So he's like, no, there is a great resurrection to come at the end. And yeah, but the, and then yeah, it'll be a bodily resurrection, and then that's right into the end of all things. 
But even right now, a person can have a resurrection by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that even when they die, they'll go and live and reign with him, waiting for that great resurrection of the end. See, I think of my mum and dad. They're with the Lord now. They are already living and reigning with him. Glory. Uh, the reign is on. Actually, I like verse 4, you see the beginning. I saw the souls. It's the souls yes. of those who have gone ahead of us who are living and reigning. I, so I think there's a mistranslation at the end of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. No, the, uh, the actual King James Version has it right according to the Greek translation. It says, not that they came to life. It says they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Mm. That is to say, their souls were living and reigning mm. with Christ for a thousand years. Mm. I think we just need that little bit of um, correction for the, for the Greek. Well, there. it says souls, doesn't it, in verse 4. It's, it's the, the souls. souls of those who live and reign with him. Exactly. Oh, glory. And then, just as we round off, uh, chapter 20, verse 7 to 15, once again, the end... Each time the language, you know, and the scale are bigger and bigger. Gog and Magog. What's this about, actually, Steve? Well, Gog and Magog. Magog, it takes us back to, uh, to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Again, we need to have the Old Testament in our minds as we're reading uh, Revelation. And uh, uh, Magog seemed to represent all the nations of the world who are oppressing the church. Gog, uh, maybe an angelic, uh, demonic power behind these nations that are oppressing the church. Uh, death and Hades, though, thrown into the uh, lake of burning sulfur. All the loose ends are tied up there. Yeah. There's no more waiting around. It's all tied up. I love that. We've, all the way through the book of Revelation, we've been riding quietly with the rider on the white horse. And as we come, we've got one more study to come. That'll be the next time. But meanwhile, when we think about those who want to destroy us, I think of the comment of the historian T.R. Glover, who said, the final disappearance of Christianity has been prophesied so often as to be no longer interesting. God bless you and thank you for joining us in this study. Wait for next time.